Is the world about to go to nuclear war? Kim Jong-un is the man on the button. Trump says America won't back down. The British Army plan to keep the Anglo-German deployment going past 2019. It's really important to both armies and to NATO, and we need to preserve it. And Portsmouth gets ready to welcome the Navy's biggest ever carrier. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper, standing in for Kate Jabot this week on Sidrip. North Korea says it's looking at a plan to fire four missiles into the Pacific Ocean, 40 kilometres off the coast of Guam. America has warned North Korea that its actions could mean the end of its regime. Sebastian Gorka, the deputy assistant to President Trump, says they can't afford to ignore what Kim Jong-un is saying. North Korea has said... They wish to annihilate the United States and use nuclear weapons. Sooner or later, somebody should take them seriously. The Obama administration did not do so. That stopped on January the 20th. We are not giving in to nuclear blackmail any longer. But he says they won't elaborate on how the US will respond if the North Koreans cross the line. If you show the players around a table your poker hand, you will lose that game. We will not telegraph in advance what we will or will not do. We have sent a very clear message. Do not challenge the United States because you will pay a cost if you do so. I'm joined by the former British ambassador to Pyongyang, David Slynn, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers, and BFBS's very own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. David Slynn, firstly to you. Do you think we're heading for a nuclear confrontation here? Uh, Frankly, I don't think so. Um, obviously we're probably moving to a situation where we have another nuclear weapon state in the world and that's far from ideal Uh, but I I think it's a a big step from from that to nuclear war and I don't think it's going to happen Professor Rogers, same question to you I don't think it's going to happen in the short term, but we have a problem for several years, and that is essentially the North Koreans are absolutely convinced they have to have some sort of nuclear force to deter what they see as an attack, and they are classified as part of the axis of evil. But for the United States, it's a sort of a bottom-line thing for President Bush, uh, sorry, President uh, Trump, that North Korea simply cannot be allowed to develop to the point where it can actually threaten the United States. So I'm afraid it's irresistible force and immovable object and I think we're going to see this for the next three years unless unexpectedly and hopefully other channels can be explored but the amount of bluster on both sides is rather worrying at present. Three years then David Slynn of potential turmoil but what could cool all this down? Uh, well the North Korean crisis goes in uh, in, in cycles and uh, you know, this is obviously an, another one of those cycles although at a much higher pitch than we've been used to in the past. Uh, the North Koreans love the, the bluster, the, hyper, the hyperbole of public statements like ones we've seen from Pyongyang over the last few days. Uh, they like it because it, it gives them world attention. It gets people talking about them. Um, and that's what helps them to justify um, their posture, their, 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 their position to their own public. Um, and they will continue that line. Uh, the... The, 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 the thing that might cool things down or help things cool things down um, is to accept that we're into a situation of uh, Cold War style defense and deterrence, um, far from ideal, uh, not least because we know very little about the, um, the decision-making process, the military protocols within North Korea. Um, but I think, I think we just have to accept that that is where we are for the time being. 
Yes, it's not going to go away, is it, Paul Rogers? No, it isn't, but I think David Slynn's really hit on one thing, and that is we have very little understanding of how they think in terms of relation to things like nuclear weapons and nuclear issues. You know very little about the planning process. In the old Cold War days with the five major nuclear powers, we had a pretty clear idea of how each power uh, worked and how it saw things and how it would operate. That's not true in North Korea's case, and this, I think, is one major limitation. That's correct, isn't it, Christopher Lee? Kim Jong-un is at the head of all this, the head of the pyramid, and we don't know much about him. We, we go on what we see on state television that we can get in the West, and the newspapers, as a result, call him a bit of a basket case. Do you see that in him? I don't think he's a basket case at all. Um, he is, in theory, he is about to become a superpower. A superpower being somebody that has a nuclear arsenal, which we don't know if he might use it or not. And that puts him in a unique position. He also uh, can sit and look at what America has done over the past few years and how America, with its superpowerdom, and Russia to a certain extent, has actually failed to fix the problems that have confronted them. And so here we have a, a, a position where he is actually saying, for example, um, we are going to, or we, we could be planning to put four uh, warheads or four missiles, perhaps without the warheads, uh, 40 kilometers off Guam. Uh, that's into the Pacific Ocean. Um, and Guam is 2,100 miles away from uh, Pyongyang. Uh, we're giving fair warning that we're going to do this. And everybody else does this sort of sea-targeting uh, sea rehearsals anyway, or exercises anyway. He is behaving exactly as one would expect. Um, not necessarily a responsible leader in our terms, but somebody who senses, I've got as much power as they have when it comes to the extreme. And certainly a regime that has been buoyed by its recent success. We've all thought their missiles were frankly rubbish, but these last ones really do work. David Slynn, does that put onto the table now a diplomatic solution? Because, because before, people like Britain could keep out of it because it didn't really matter that much. Now, the diplomats are starting to think, well, perhaps we need to get on board with this and sort this out. Do you think Britain will become involved too? Um... Um, geographic durations. No incidents that the that the. I'm sorry, David. We're having problems with your line there. No, I think we've lost David Slim um, there. No, we have lost him. Um, Paul, let's ask you that question. Um, is there a diplomatic way forward here? Not without China. Uh, China is absolutely crucial on this. It's the one state which does have influence. I think the reality is that um, we're going to have to recognise that North Korea probably will not negotiate any kind of longer-term solution until it has a minimal nuclear force and can deliver it over long distances. It regards that as essential, but this, of course, is a problem that is unacceptable to the United States. Uh, but I, this is where we are. It may go slow. It may be possible to slow it down. It may be possible to start reversing the thing by, you know, good steps on either side. But at the moment, we have high levels of rhetoric and on both sides um, a tendency to escalate, particularly in the case of Mr. Trump and his extraordinary rhetoric at his golf course the other day. Without Mr. Trump, without Mr. Trump in those days, I seem to remember going through, not exactly this, but when Pakistan and India 
were becoming nuclear superpowers. And we looked and we thought, this means a nuclear war between uh, India and Pakistan over Kashmir, for example. Um, I think we can just, I don't mean relax, but we can actually put some things in perspective. Um, If, for example, uh, you had the North Korean leader who says, I want what I've called before respect. I want you to accept me the same way as you had to accept uh, Pakistan, but not just you, but everybody around. And we can actually not settle into any sort of uh, easygoing relationship, but not going to the point where uh, nuclear weapons are brought into this. Now, I'll tell you something which we should not forget, and that is the conventional power of the North Koreans. If the Americans, for example, preempted a strike let's say, uh, on four or five targets in North Korea. All that the uh, North Koreans have to do is go for the little town which is just south of the border, which happens to be the South Korean capital, and there you have got the beginnings of a holocaust. I mean, there's another part of this, just finally to conclude, Paul, in this section. I mean, is part of what uh, the regime in Pyongyang is doing to sort of show its allies, i.e. China, that it is a force to be reckoned with? Because for so long now, they've been totally reliant and subservient to China. I think so, yes. The Chinese have a close relationship with North Korea. They do not want the regime to collapse. They fear all the economic and social problems, the large numbers of North Korean refugees flooding across the Yalu River. So they really, uh, in a sense, are dependent on North Korea as well. Um, Yes, the North Koreans want this kind of respect. They are still, though, what we would call a fortress state. And we've had many of those in the past, some of which have passed on, some of which still have that kind of status. But overall, I think the real problem with all of this is nothing to do with actually planned attacks. It's the risk of untoward escalation. that old acronym AIM, A-I-M, accidents, incidents and mavericks, the things that can sort of throw you off board when you have two states in a state of high tension and crisis. And one might say with maverick leaders leading both of those states. (laughs) Paul Rogers, stay where you are because let's talk with you some more on our next topic. But that is career, one that's definitely going to run and run. We'll be keeping a close eye on here on SITREP. Portsmouth back in business with the big ships. I think that we will expect a huge number of people coming to South Sea, uh, lining the seafront to get a view of this spectacle when she comes in. And the Imperial War Museum on the warpath with its members. The Commander of Field Army has said he's concerned that a unique collaboration between British and German forces could disappear when UK troops are out of Germany by 2019. The two forces use joint specialist skills to move military vehicles across rivers in what is known as an M3 rig. Here's Lieutenant General Patrick Saunders talking to Amy Dewitt, our Germany reporter, during a visit to Minden. First of all, I've been spending time with my... German opposite number, Lieutenant General Carsten Jakobsen, who, between the two of us, we've been promoting and just checking on the interoperability between the two armies. It's also given me a chance to go and see 20 Brigade over in Paderborn. And on a personal note, it's always great to be back in Germany. Um, This is, I think, I've done three tours over here, so good to be back. How does it feel to be working together? It feels great. Carsten is a great friend of the British Army. He's been through staff college in the UK. He's married to an English lady. Um, So he knows us extremely well. 
and the closeness of the relationship that we had and my predecessor had with him really represents, I think, the closeness between the two armies. We spent a great deal of time alongside each other uh, and things like this capability here, the M3s, um, really underline how much we can do together and the importance of staying close together. It's the first time for me that I've ever seen one of these roads be put together into the bridge and as a ferry. I thought it was really impressive. Now, I'm sure you've seen it before, but what did you think watching the display? It's awesome. I mean, every time I see it, you know, you get a little shiver down your spines. It's like watching aquatic ballet, the skill that the blokes have in avoiding bumping into each other other than in a controlled way when they're linking up in a, in a fast current is incredible. And you think that they do that at night and they've got to do it in a way that is safe to get challenges and tanks and, and, and armoured vehicles across them. You know, it's, a, it's a pretty pretty amazing skill and it's a great piece of kit. After the display, you had a bit of a special experience yourself, didn't you? I got to drive the M3 into the water. Yeah, that's cool. How did that feel? Did the water come over the windscreen? Talk me through it. Yeah, well, they throw up a, a sort of bow plate, so you go in blind, but you can feel it's a quite a strange transition between you know, feeling you're in control driving down a ramp and then suddenly the water just taking control and the current pulling you downstream. Um, but then the, uh, then the pilot up top takes, takes, takes over. It's good. Do you find that you've got sort of almost a newfound respect? I'm sure you respected them before, but now that you've actually felt what it feels like, kind of gives you an idea of what they go through every time they build these bridges. I don't think you can fail to be impressed. They're, uh, they're, they are a highly professional and impressive troop, uh, or both troops, the reserve and the regular troop, and the Germans are amazing. They're very, very skilled with what they do. So it's a capability that's really important to both armies and to NATO, and we need to preserve it. What plans, speaking of preserving it, what plans have you guys got for the future working alongside the Germans? Speaking for this capability here, we're looking to maintain it. There's an option to see what we can do to extend it. We'll look at that through the course of the rest of this year. But the partnership between the German 1st Panzer Division and the British 3 UK Division is very close. We're working on a lot of divisional level capabilities to promote interoperability. And of course, we're serving alongside each other in the Baltics on enhanced forward presence. So a lot we're doing together. There we go, that was Lieutenant General Patrick Saunders talking to Amy Dewitt in Germany. Good bit of kit, that, that M3 rig. Um, there's some film of that on BFPS television. Christopher, um, last week the head of the army said he wants to keep the Senelaga training area post-2019. Uh, That's really what this is all about, isn't it? It's about what happens with Germany, British personnel and involvement going forward. I think it is, and it, it, it's even further. So what do you do? Yeah. You, you say, for example, you can bring the brigade back, but you don't bring their kit back. Mm-hmm. Basically. But it, it's something here, isn't it, Paul? The It's the broad broader view of the future when although you're bringing let's say a brigade out or or whatever nobody here now taking a much wider view of what NATO is what its responsibilities are what it imaginations what imagination it has about its its threat for example uh, running into miscalculations etc it's it's a different sort of deployment a deployment uh, philosophy as well Yes, it is. I mean, I, I've not seen the M3 rig sort of face to face, so to speak. I've seen film of it. And it is absolutely remarkable how it works. But the wider thing, I think, is at two levels. What happens after Brexit? Uh, how does the British Army in particular collaborate in the future? And secondly, this kind of skill, this kind of kit does not just apply in wartime, in warfare. 
this is also something which has a very important civil function as well. And I think this is one of the areas where this kind of area of training is absolutely essential that a large professional group like the British Army does maintain this, and it is not just in its traditional roles. You can imagine the rig, for example, being very important in some of the major um, emergency relief or even peacekeeping operations. So I think it goes much wider than, than the old BAOR. Let's um, keep going with Kit and talk about HMS Queen Elizabeth, the Royal Navy's latest and biggest ever carrier. It's about to arrive at her home port, Portsmouth. It's a sea boots and spurs day for the Royal Navy. And for Portsmouth itself, it means jobs, transport, redevelopment opportunities. And one of the two carriers expected to be based there at any one time. The economics of what was a military decision can affect thousands of civilians. His leader of Portsmouth City Council, Donna Jones. It is really important because, as we know, governments like to carry out strategic defence reviews periodically. And going into the next SDSR, I am very happy as the leader of a military city, home to the Royal Navy here in Portsmouth, that Portsmouth Naval Base is now secure for the next 50 years because she is guaranteed to be home to the HMS Queen Elizabeth and the HMS Prince of Wales, two of the largest ships that the government has ever built. And that is so important because there was a time not so long ago, previous SDSRs, when there was real discussion about the future of the Royal Navy and the future of its bases. Absolutely. And with the Type 23s being replaced by the new Type 26 class and a question mark over where they will be based, of course, my job now is to work very closely with local naval stakeholders here, the Commodore of the Naval Base, Jeremy Rigby, and to make sure that Portsmouth is positioned very well for the future. But for the city of Portsmouth and the wider area, the arrival of HMS Queen Elizabeth at some point in the next 10 days is hugely exciting and we anticipate over 2,000 jobs will be created in the supply chain when she is based here with her sister ship the HMS Prince of Wales. And that's a huge um, level of jobs within the city because people that don't know Portsmouth perhaps don't quite understand how important the dockyard is to the city. Could you just explain just how important it is? Well, yeah, first dry dock in the world established here in Portsmouth. You know, this city owes over a thousand years of history to military activities and Navy. Portsmouth was quite strong in terms of the army. We've got lots of garrison and, and old garrison sites around Portsmouth, which date back over a hundred years. But the Navy has always been very, very important. Portsmouth is the only island city in the UK, and I think one of only two island cities across the whole of Europe. So for us, maximising on the water that we can see here behind us, whether that be super yachts, whether that be, you know, excellent sailing like Sir Ben Ainsley and co, or the Royal Navy, it's very, very important to us. And yes, it's undoubtedly shaped the local economy. And Portsmouth, Southampton, the whole of the Solent area, uh, I think is the strongest marine and maritime industrial area in the whole of Europe. Let's uh, fast forward to, to when the ship comes in. And Portsmouth has been known, particularly Falklands War, we all think back to, but even just a normal ship going out, there's always a great you know, send off or welcome. How do you think the city will react to the ship coming in? What's the scene going to be like down here? Well, if it's slightly more sunny than today uh, and a little bit less blowy, uh, I think we can easily expect probably around up to 100,000 people in Portsmouth. Of course, I understand there is some reticence about the date and time she comes in because it is so weather dependent. And I understand that the captain of the ship uh, has got to take safety as the absolute number one priority. But if it's a sunny day and the conditions are right, I think that we will expect a huge 
huge number of people coming to South Sea, uh, lining the seafront, and uh, obviously down here in Old Portsmouth where we are today to get a view of this spectacle when she comes in and entirely fills the gap behind us uh, as she comes in between uh, Portsmouth and Gosport and fills almost entirely the entrance to the harbour. It's going to be so exciting and I really, really can't wait for it to happen. Yeah, this is going to be exciting and uh, we'll be there to bring it to you when it does on BFPS TV and radio. Um, Christopher, the obvious question really, but what would Portsmouth be without the Royal Navy? Not much. Well, it's, it's exactly the same as the other uh, uh, naval bases, naval towns. I mean, I remember, for example, in Chatham, mm. um, when Chatham went, when David Owen, the defence or the, or the naval minister, got rid of uh, uh, Chatham, you saw some like 7,000 people went out of work. But these were skills as well that you wouldn't get, that you would only get in a naval dockyard, uh, apart from rope makers, which is the only one that survived in the museum. But people like boiler makers yeah. uh, and uh, copper beaters, people like that went. And if you take Portsmouth, for example, there's a, there's a, a single-man tailor right outside the naval dockyard. He's been there for two generations. When they knew they were getting a 50 ship, a ship for 50 years, he decided not to close. He, if you include his his uh, cleaning lady and everybody else, actually employs, although he's a single tailor, he employs nine people. Now, that is what happens if you spread this right the way through from Portsmouth. That is what it means. It's not just ships. It's just not sailors, you know, Jack ashore spending any money. It is the whole town and the image of the town and how the town feels about itself. I mean, it's the wider area, as Donna Jones was saying there in that interview I did with her yesterday. I mean, it is a maritime hub now and it is secure in her mind. But I mean, if there wasn't it, it's not just tailors, it's up at Portis, there's a whole business park dedicated toward supply chain for the Royal Navy. It is, it is huge. But one thing about the carrier coming in, it does raise questions about the fleet as a whole. And let's bring back Paul Rogers uh, on this one, Paul. Um, this week, Rear Admiral Alex Burton, Commander UK Maritime Forces, has said he's confident about the carrier and it will have enough protection from the fleet. But there's been a, a lot of concern about whether there are enough ships. Certainly at the moment it would appear not. But are you confident, Paul, going forward? No, I'm not, actually. I mean, the the, the problem with you know, the destroyers, the, the Type 20... Uh, the Type 45s is really still quite critical. I don't want to put a damper on things, but actually I think the decision to build these two huge carriers many years ago is actually a mistake. I think it's far too much sort of all your eggs in one basket. And I think it means that we're going to have actually, paradoxically, a less versatile and less effective Navy. I would have liked to have seen a much smaller set of replacements, probably almost like a sort of one-for-one one of 20,000 to 25,000 tonne ships. And bearing in mind the huge developments in uh, unmanned uh, vehicles of one sort or another, I think we're going to be almost at the end of the time if you have the very big aircraft carriers with fixed-wing crewed aircraft. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, obviously it's an incredible ship. I've got lots of time for Portsmouth. It's a remarkable place. I mean, going right back to Roman times, you, you know, Portchester Castle, if it was anywhere else, else in the world, would be world famous. The Palmerston <laughs> Forts are, are, are on you know, the Chalk Ridge. They're astonishing structures. I mean, I, I went round Portsmouth Harbour fairly recently and saw so many of the ships there. It does get, put a, uh, a shiver down your spine. But I'm afraid I still feel that the actual carrier decision was not a good one for the Royal Navy. Christopher, briefly on that. Yeah, well, I wonder who's going to buy the second carrier. 
That's the first thing. Pyongyang? Uh, not quite. <laughs> but the second thing, which, I mean, I, I think that this, you know, pulls on something here. There's another side of it. Who are we going to get to drive the carriers in the future? Uh, it's only one at sea. But you need a lot of people, you need a lot of people in training, you need a lot of trickle drafting to keep the damn thing going. And I think this is the great problem that the Navy faces, is not so much the ships that they might have, but who drives them. How should museums make enough money to stay open? The Imperial War Museums has upset many of its core supporters, the Friends of the Imperial War Museum, with plans to close their membership scheme and bring it in-house. Now, this means they'll have to pay to get into special exhibitions. In the past, it's been free because they're one of the Friends. Let's talk now on the line to Mark Smith, who has big experience uh, running in his own museum and uh, you will be familiar with from the Antiques Roadshow as their military expert. Uh, Mark, is this the sort of problem a lot of these bigger museums are having? Ah, good afternoon. Um, I think it's a it's a problem that all museums have. Uh, funding these days is something which is you know very high on everybody's agenda when they try to open the doors to their museum, and every strand of income that you can you can bring through the door is is a very welcome uh, you know addition to your funds. But um, we we had a a friends organisation at the uh, Royal Artillery Museum in Woolwich, um, and there was never really any thought of bringing them in house because. Bless them, they were a standalone organisation who did their best and supplied the museum um, with a funding stream every year, uh, pretty much as, as the friends seem to do for the Imperial War Museum. Um, they're good-natured people. They're out there to help you. Um, I, I personally wouldn't have alienated them in that sort of a fashion, particularly with the sort of money that they were actually uh, donating throughout the year. I mean, that's the point, Christopher Lee, isn't it? And Paul Rogers, for that matter, on this. Um, the Friends of is by definition, meant to be independent of the organisation they're being friendly with? Well, sort of. I mean, it, it, I mean, if you look around all the museums, I mean, the British, British Library, for example, the British Museum, they've all got the Royal Academy, they've all got friends of. I think the, um, the Imperial War Museum uh, goes through a different phase, and that is exactly what it is a museum of. Um, and when you decide what to put in it, um, where do you get the people that are coming to see it? We get people coming from all over the world simply to make a trip to see the Imperial War Museum and just the one, in fact, uh, in, in, in south-east London. And there's another thing which is not necessarily... or two things here. One is the, the, the access to the libraries, which is a tremendous amount of information which researchers, amateur as well as professional, ought to have, which they don't get it as well. And the second thing is the actual title, Imperial War Museum. You can call it IWM or whatever you like, but there is, for a new generation, why Imperial, and is it simply about the Imperial uh, forces, the Imperial armies and navies and air forces uh, of, of the United Kingdom? Yes, I mean, that is a point, isn't it, Mark Smith? Modernising needs to be done in some ways. Successful museums in the past that we've seen are ones that have changed. But how do you go about that without upsetting your previous loyal supporters? Well, I think that's always going to be a problem. Um, we used to call them sort of the uh, the retired regiment that uh, that looked upon the museum that they remembered from training in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and they were always up against the idea that they, they didn't want the museum to change in any way. Um, I think you've got to be able to, to change what you offer, and you've also got to be able to offer that in a, in a different way. Um, you will always upset someone. Um, we had 
many long talks over the idea of calling the, the museum Firepower, the Royal Artillery Museum. Um, for a start, if you look up the Royal Artillery Museum in a phone directory, you can't find it because it's under F, not under T or R <laughs> or artillery. Um, so the name is always evocative. However you approach the name, it's always going to be evocative. Um, I, I think the, the idea of calling it the Imperial War Museum in, in this changing world is something that if, if the brand is good enough, then the Imperial War Museum, the IWM, is known by everyone as that is the War Museum. So I don't think that... I, I wouldn't personally think of it as something that only dealt with, you know, the Imperial Age. It, for me, it's just the museum of mm. wars that have happened in the 20th century. Mark Smith, thanks very much indeed. Quick word from you on this, Paul Rogers. In 20 seconds, your take, please. Well, I would just recommend that people go and see the current exhibition at the IWM, People Power Fighting for Peace. It's on until the 28th of August. It's a remarkable thing and shows how wide-ranging wide the IWM actually is. Brilliant. That's a good point well made. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme today, Paul Rogers. I should just mention uh, that the Imperial War Museum have uh, given us a statement on this and they say, we remain in ongoing discussions with the chairman and board of the Friends of the Imperial War Museum in order to reach an agreement which will be both beneficial to the Imperial War Museum and to the Friends of the Imperial Imperial War Museum. That's all about the Imperial War Museum, if you hadn't guessed. Christopher Lee, it's going to be an exciting time, isn't it? Just very briefly and very finally, the carrier next week or the week after at some point into Portsmouth. Looking forward to it? it yeah, and I tell you something, in future, do you know how many thousand Olympic pools they've had to dredge out of the entrance so she can get in? Oh, it's, it's billions, isn't it's it? Like 22,000 Olympic pools. Yeah, it's t feet and feet and feet of mud, and they found so much, um, including a human skull, which the police are looking at, and various other artefacts which have gone to Wessex archaeology. It's absolutely fascinating. Anyway, watch her that's at low it. tide. Watch her at low tide, I, I see. I shall. Thanks very much, Christopher. Join me again and Christopher next week on SITREP. Look at our podcast and all that stuff as well. But in the meantime, have a great week, won't you? Thanks. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.